The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money here on News Talk 1493.9 FM. You're invited to join the program by calling 217-356-9397 or send a text on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line 217-351-5357. Opinions and views expressed in this program are those of the host and guests and not necessarily those of the station. And now, On the Money with your host, Paul Rudy. Well, good morning, everybody. This is Paul Rudy, as they just said, for Paul Rudy's On the Money radio show. Hope everybody's doing well today. Uh, Dr. Fred Gertz is not with us. He's still traveling. He's going to be on our next show. So I thought I'd let people know that. See, you guys can hear all the radios turn off, right? <laughs> <laughs> I can feel the IQ of the show dropping when you announce Dr. Fred's and, out. And, uh, of course, I and that was a Certified Financial Planner Professional Ryan Repko, who's with me on the show each time as well. A certified Financial Planner Professional David Rudy. Good morning, guys. Good morning. You can call in with your questions, 217-356-9397. Might be some questions today after that roller coaster ride of the last week or so, particularly yesterday. Or you could text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. You can also email your question to talk at wdws.com. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. Or yesterday's performance is not an indication of future results, right? <laughs> you should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. Well, guys, you know, there's a reason we do lifeboat drills at Rudy Wealth Management for our clients. The most recent, probably the last couple of newsletters, I've tried to get people mentally prepared um, for inevitable, the you know, kind of the inevitable fluctuation that comes. And we've been really spoiled. In fact, we still haven't had a, an official correction on a closing basis for at least 300 trading days. So this is really a, a, a it's not the longest stretch, I'm sure I could check, but I don't think it is. But it's certainly one of the longer stretches without so much as a 10% correction. So when you hear people talk about corrections in the stock market, they're saying at least 10%. Usually it's thought of 10 to 15% in that zone. And of course, you'll hear people mention the term bear market, which of course means, oh, we've actually dropped 20% from all-time highs. And the average bear market uh, lops off about a third temporarily of the value of this, not the value, the price of the stock market is probably a better way to think of it. So the NASDAQ index, the high-tech stocks, of course, they actually are in a full-blown correction. I think they're down 13 or 14% through, they're off their all-time highs uh, as of yesterday's close. But yesterday, you know, the, the Dow was down 1,000 points in the morning. The NASDAQ was down probably the equivalent of almost 2,000 Dow points. Uh, and then by the end of the day, lo and behold, you know, everything turned positive. So it was kind of an interesting day. And I know you guys got contacted by a couple of people, you know, in the morning, you know, watching. Uh, and that tends to be people that haven't been with us all that long and have not been through uh, uh, a series of over one's lifetime uh, for every. Uh, typically, if you look at the last 50 years, you would expect a correction of somewhere around 14 percent intra-year every year almost. It's, that's not perfectly timed like that. But on average, every year for the last 50 years, in a bear market with a 20 to 30 percent decline, you know, somewhere every four or five years. Um, and and so we're just always I'm always doing I'm always taking the punch bowl away uh, at, at the time when 
my clients, I think they found them rather predictable, you know, uh, what the newsletter is going to say. But I was looking back at my end of 2017 newsletter going into 2018, and I was kind of doing the same thing, saying, look, we've had a few really good years in a row. It's been a long time since we've had a correction. It's a very normal part of the process. Uh, in fact, it's, it's, I think it's health restoring uh, for markets to periodically go through these inevitable declines. And of course, by the end of 2018, we had had an awful year in 2018. And then going into 2019, I was interested to go back to my newsletter to figure out what I wrote in January of 2019 after we had just come off essentially into the end of the year, a bear market, a decline of about 20% over a rather short period of time. And <clears throat> I was suggesting that maybe we, sh that the market, stock market doesn't have any memory and maybe we ought to let last year go and we could probably expect reasonable returns, you know, even though we don't forecast, right? So uh, the, the whole point is I think these lifeboat drills, as we call them, do pay off. Well, yeah, it's <laughs> as as you say often, you know, surprise is the mother of panic, and that's the point of the lifeboat drills is to avoid surprise. I mean, at the end of the day, when you choose an investment allocation, you need to know what you're getting into, and I think a lot of times uh, individual investors in particular don't always know what they're getting into. You know, they see the recent past and the strong returns aren't necessarily looking back far enough to see the ugly periods, or maybe they're just not paying too much attention to them. And then something like a normal 10% correction comes along that historically happens, as you mentioned, like once every single year, but it's just been a long time and they get kind of freaked out by it. And really it's in the grand scheme of things, really mild. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it is, it's, complacency can take, you know, a, you know effect um, after 300 days of going by without a 10% correction. So you can see why people kind of got lulled into this idea that every month or so you could go look at your 401k plan or your retirement plan and find out your assets are higher than they were a month ago or two months ago. We made 75 all-time all, uh, all new highs just in 2021 alone, so you can see why. People kind of got used to it. Yep, certainly. I always find it like a, an interesting observation. It's something that I think uh, is just kind of going to be a part of our job as advisors is seeing clients during good times and, and recent, like really recent periods of good uh, performance say, yeah, I, I want that 60 or 70% stock allocation because they've just been mentally preparing themselves for the positives. And, and right. then all of a sudden that that first, let's just not even call it like bear market decline, just that first testing event shows up and they say, whoa, 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 hold the brakes. I didn't want the downside. I just wanted the upside. And I know it sounds laughable, but it, it really is, you know, comments that we'll see from certain clients from time to time, just like I, I, I didn't want to see the downward side. And I think as advisors, that's, you know, the single greatest uh, thing we can do for the clients is always constantly remind and reiterate that it, it cuts both ways and you don't get the premium returns of uh, any portfolio without putting up with some of the more difficult uh, risk periods where maybe you're you're seeing temporarily reduced prices in in your investments in your bank you know bank account which the <laughs> some of the clients look at their investment portfolio as a bank account it only goes up it doesn't go down uh, that number you know can temporarily fluctuate above and below what you know a bank account number would be so you got to remember it's an investment account it's invested in um things that go up and down and you it's guys, not just one way do you guys think you it'd be uh probably wise to think of the fluctuation i don't really want to call it volatility as a fee for it's kind of the admission for higher longer term returns as opposed to 
when it goes down, seeing that as a fine for making a mistake or something. I think, it, you know, you have to pull out every psychological trick you can during these difficult times and say, look, the reason we are in the stock market portion, or I prefer to call it the great companies of America and the world, is because of the higher expected returns. But those returns aren't free. There's a price to be paid, if, if you can call it a price, and the price is those returns are rather or wildly unpredictable in the near term, and that's just what you're buying into. And But I think if we can look at all these things, another way that I've always felt that helps, and it's interesting that we're even talking about this and we haven't even had an official 10% correction, but you can kind of take the temperature of listening to people and realize all of a sudden, you know, after 300 days of not having a correction, we're almost into one. And during the day yesterday, we were. Um, you know, it just makes sense to to talk about these things and ha- try to look at every psychological advantage that you can get. One of the things I always think about is, okay, well, I bought these great companies because of where they're going to be in 10 years or 20 or 30 years from now, what their dividends are going to be over that time, what their earnings are going to be. And to me, that part doesn't change. Just because the stock market's down 4% during the day uh, doesn't mean that 20 years from now, uh, the, the, the companies are going to, that somehow their earnings expectations. So the way I've always felt about every decline, and this has really helped me, is when the stock market declines, at the same time, this expected return is going up. So there's an offset. So it's saying, like, no, we're going to get to those earnings down the road. It's just temporarily right now. It just looks a little blurry, but we're going to get there. And so when prices are down for those same earnings down the road, that means you have a higher expected return going forward. There's, there's this really, there's really no lifetime impact of a temporary decline. I I was thinking about this yesterday, and this is kind of a weird thought, but I was thinking about how, you know, people always think like, oh, my earnings are when the market's going up. But if you frame the word earn, like normally you say, like, I earn a paycheck. It's like I'm doing something. I'm making some sacrifice to earn something. I was thinking about, you know, you really earn your, your stock returns in periods where the market is down and you keep your cool while everyone else is panicking and selling. It's kind of a weird way to think about it, but it's like these are the periods where if I can remain disciplined, I'm I'm basically I'm earning or setting myself up for those future long-term returns. Because the uh, the other side of that is if you can't keep your head when everybody else uh you know is not when everybody else can't can when you can't keep your head, <laughs> okay? Uh when you should in other words, then you're going to be tempted to do something. And do something probably means let's, going to, let's sell some things. Let's reduce our exposure to the great companies of America and the world. Now, more likely than not, we're interrupting that lifetime of compounding. And that's so, you know, I think it makes perfect sense the way you say it, that you're earning it. because it's, But it's, think about it this way. At the same time, you're earning it by not doing anything. In other words, just by just sitting aside and let it happen and don't react to current events and instead continuously act on your plan, you actually are earning those lifetime higher expected returns by doing nothing. Or as Warren Buffett put, benign neglect, something about like uh, similar to a sloth. That's, you know, that's how we ought to react to our investments. Or I've also heard it phrased another way. I think it was Nick Murray who said, you know, periods of big market declines are when shares of stocks are returned to their rightful owners. Mm -hmm. It's like the people who are 
able to you know control their emotions even if they're not feeling great they're able to say look i have this plan in place i chose this allocation for a reason i'm going to stick with it maybe rebalance they're going to be the ones that as he says you know there's the people panicking selling their shares to right. the, the people who are staying calm and they're the ones buying it as you said kind of at discount prices taking advantage of that I think it's also a requirement for successful investing is to have the view that there is a permanent uptrend uh, in the price of the great companies of America and the world. Call it the stock market if you want. So we could say, okay, the S&P Standard and Poor's 500 index. It's been on a permanent uptrend for 100 and, well, since uh, 1876, I think is where we go back to data, with sheer terror in between. But it's been, it clearly demonstrates a permanent uptrend towards progress and higher prices, and that's really due to human ingenuity and, and, and our cleverness as humans to solve problems. And it's interesting, just kind of as a side note, you know, one of the things I always write about and talk about is, you know, every emergency we, in the past, we've always learned to either fix, we either solve it, we solve the crisis, or we learn to live with it. And I've been saying that a lot the last few years and the last couple of years with COVID. And it's interesting now to see some of the headlines that we're seeing that basically are literally saying, it looks like it's just something we're going to have to learn to live with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that it's, it feels good to be, I wouldn't say vindicated is not the right word, but when you are responsible for hundreds of families' lifestyles, their financial lifestyles, and you have these principles and you have these long-term views that are basically unshakable, it's interesting to see it play out right in front of your eyes. And, you know, and it's, it, it just allows you to remain optimistic when I think a lot of people can't. And I think the job of a good advisor is, is that they may be that only quiet, rational voice at a time when everybody else is very excitable. Yep. And I think that pays a lot of dividends, no pun intended. Yep. And I think for most people, you know, the stock market can be the single greatest thing that could ever happen to them if they're well-informed. Because if you, if you have the information to know that these short-term declines are not something that should offset your financial life throughout the rest of your life, and you've been given the guidance that these kinds of events are normal, they're regular, to, they're, be too expected, they're, they're, they're to be expected, you don't know when they will show up, but you should expect them to occur, um, that'll put you on a correct course. But I think the harshest lesson in, in investing in stocks or stock mutual funds is borne by the people who are the least informed because they think, well, the stock market's down, I need to do something, I need to get to safety, I need to flee. And as soon as you hit that sell button or move to cash or go to bonds during these deep declines, you've permanently lost what you could have had. You can't, I see, I see you can't it differently. Get it back. I see it differently, though. And maybe maybe you're not. Maybe I'm not hearing what you're saying. <clears throat> I don't think it's the people with the least knowledge. I, you, there's some of the smartest people on paper on mm-hmm. earth that will make the same exact mistake because at the end of the day, it's never, it's not that left side of our brain that makes our decisions. It's the right side of our brain, which is the side that gets excited, right? It's, it's the visual side. It's the emotional side of our brain that makes all our decisions. So it's tempting to think of it, I think, in that way that the least informed, but think about how you, look, we see, if you watch CNBC during the day, most of these people have highly informed people mm-hmm. but they'll get on there and say the most excitable reckless things i remember four or five years ago i was screaming and probably cussing no kids around <laughs> at a fellow who said oh yeah go to cash in your 401k plan and i'm wow. thinking how how could he even how could those words come out of his mouth yeah right 
So I didn't mean to. I'm not really jumping oh, no. on what you're saying, and that's not really what you meant. But I, I guess you know, I could take what you're saying is, look, even if you're super intelligent. <laughs> you may not be all that well-informed as far as a historical perspective. It's almost like the two extremes. I think you're right, right that it's right. like the people who have very little financial knowledge are quick to panic when the market falls. They don't really understand the history of the stock market, what you're a lot of times not even truly understanding what they're Just the expectations in. are, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Then you have the opposite extreme of the people who are extremely intelligent and have a really hard time coming to grips with the fact that that doesn't mean they can time the market. Right. You know what I mean? I, so I was um, talking to, I think it was my wife yesterday, and I was saying there was another advisor that I had watched a video with him one time, and this advisor specialized in working with doctors, with physicians. Right. And he said, oh, I tell all of my clients that doctors are the worst investors as a group uh, on the planet. And I, I just kind of chuckled. But he said, the reason is they're all incredibly intelligent people. I mean, to get through med school and become a doctor, you have to be really smart. And they tend to be really competitive, type A personalities. And because of that, they're very, it's very common for them to fall in the trap of thinking, therefore, I should be able to outperform everyone else by picking stocks or timing the market. And I don't necessarily, you know, I'm not saying that. I just thought it was a funny example of you do get that where sometimes you have that opposite extreme of people who are highly intelligent that then fall into the overconfidence trap. Mm-hmm. I've seen that change in this town a great deal. When I first entered the business uh, 38 years ago, uh, I, I, my sense, watching what a lot of physicians were doing and behaving, I think that that was largely the case. Any more, any new physician we pick up as a client, I found more and more tend to be more passive. Most of their assets tend to be in their 401k plan. Most good 401k plans are you know, sort of passively managed using index funds, et cetera. So I think to some degree that's changing. Um, yeah, and that's been my experience. So that's why I didn't say, you know, it's not necessarily that I share that view. That was just an example. I of would have years advisor. ago, but, but not not today. Yeah, and it could be anyone. I think you could say the same thing of engineers, potentially. I think often they're very intelligent, analytical people that get drawn to um, trying to figure out some advantage in the stock market, whether it's figuring out how to time the market or figure out you know which stocks are going to outperform. It's okay, just kind of so so people have got a little bit excited, you know, excitable, excitable about the stock market, you know, falling eight percent suddenly uh, through yesterday. But at the same time, we have another sort of investor crisis. Not really. I'm 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 exaggerating it, but it, with interest rates going up, it's causing bond prices to go down at the same time. So how what what do you guys do to explain how that works? And let's talk a little bit about the impact of higher interest rates. The Federal Reserve's committed to at least four in, interest rate increases. Now, whether it's four at a quarter of a percent, you know, a year from now, we're 1% higher in Fed funds than we are today, which are essentially zero or close to it. Um, th- through different people's lives, through different lenses, how does... How do higher interest rates hurt people and how do they help people? So I think from the hurt side, I think most people look at it and say, well, I could, if I have a substantial sum of money in bonds, inflation goes up. Now those bonds aren't worth as much as they were. That was supposed to be the stable side of my portfolio that I don't want to call it a safety net because there's not, you know, there's not a true safety net in bonds. They're still an investment. They're still going to have fluctuations. So they look at that and say, oh no, this was what I had mentally checked off in my brain as the safe zone of my money. And now that inflation 
is causing the value to go down. There's that inverse relationship. And interest rates, with rising interest rates, and how do you explain that to people? Like, well, why do bonds go down if interest rates go up? Well, I basically say, look, you know, if you have a bond that has an interest rate of 1%, I'm just making up numbers, right, right. a 1% yield, and then interest rates rise, and now all these new bonds that are being issued are, are you know, issued at, at yields of 2%, well, your bond just became less valuable because it's it has half the yield of two uh, percent bonds. So to become competitive, basically the price of that bond has to drop, so, so that to where they're the same yield, you get the ex exactly the similar expected return. Yield. But people, I th you think they uh, over exaggerate the concern? You know, you'll hear people say, "Well, that's why I don't want to be in bond funds because if interest rates go up, bond prices go down, and at least if I buy the bonds, I can hold them to maturity and I never have to worry about them being worth less." Even though maybe during the year they are worth less if they were to try to sell them. Mm -hmm. It's just that they know that they can hold to maturity. Yeah. Is that, there much to that? that? Not really. So it's blown out of proportion because the way I think of it is they forget about the opportunity cost. By choosing to just hang on to your bond, you're choosing not to sell it and reinvest in that higher yielding bond for that next block of time. So as much as it feels like, hey, I haven't lost money, it, you know, the value of your bond has dropped. And if you choose not to sell it, you're choosing not to then reinvest in something that has a higher yield that you could you could do that that you have that option to just sell your existing bond so, so even though the, your individual bond might not be marked to market in in reality you're still suffering the same impact on that day the question is whether you're going to sell your bond or not uh, if you don't plan on selling the bond fund for a year and i don't plan on selling my bond for a year you're in the same place at all times yeah, I mean, it's really like I said. I think, I think it's more just of an intangible cost because you're not seeing necessarily. You're not worried like, oh, the the value of my bond fund. I'm not seeing that drop, even though the price of your bond theoretically dropped. People think basically it eliminates interest rate risk if you just hold a bond in maturity, but it really doesn't. Like I said, because you have that opportunity cost of you chose you chose to hang on to a a lower yielding bond than reinvesting in a higher yielding bond. Well, for a long time, years and years and years now, you know, retirees, you know, investors in fixed income producing uh, instruments like CDs and bonds, et cetera, have been complaining about the low interest rates uh, is one of the upsides that if you have, unless you're locked into 30-year bonds or something, but if you have a short-term or a bond ladder or uh, short-term bond funds, they eventually they mature rather quickly and they take advantage of those higher interest rates. It couldn't it be good for retirees to have bonds with higher interest rates just, you know, from a survival standpoint? Eventually, I was going to mention, you know, when you first asked this question, I think a lot of the concern over interest rates just gets down to, well, what time horizon are you focusing on? Right. Cuz yeah, in the short run it's going to be painful for your bond fund to a certain degree, especially if you're in longer-term bonds. But in the long run, you you really want you want interest rates to rise from where they are now because they're so low. So you just the way I look at it is you have to just put up with a little bit of short term pain for the long term gain of actually earning a little bit higher interest on your bond portfolio. One of the things I think people don't understand though, suppose um, uh, you know suddenly you have five uh, percent CDs. Now people dream of that day, you know, in, in the world of zero to one percent CDs. Um, but even then, that means inflation's higher because that's why interest rates have gone up. 
uh, and after taxes and inflation, you're probably not all that much better off in a four or five percent CD than you were in the one or two percent CD. Is that is that fair? I think so. I mean, you talk about that all the time, even with the extremes. What, what was it, the 1970s when CDs were like 13% or right, something Right, late crazy 70s, like uh, very early, uh, say 1981, you could get a 16% six-month CD. I remember those. So like up until recently, the saving grace for, I guess, to a certain degree with bonds was, yeah, the, the yields are really low, but inflation had been really low. <laughs> Now inflation's and, picking up. You would think eventually bond interest rates would or they will will reflect higher inflation. You know, big, well they'll have to. In. I yeah. mean, uh, either right now, either the bond market they call them the bond vigilantes believe that the Fed will get inflation under control, or the bond market's wrong and they'll figure out they're wrong real fast, and they'll mark they'll mark bond prices down a lot, and which means interest rates get so the, there's some. There can be real pressure from the bond market as well. It's just right now, it's the bond market's not really putting that pressure on the Fed um, and reacting in a way. It's reacting more as if they believe that inflation is going to get under control. Maybe the bond market's wrong. Uh, it's certainly not a perfect, uh, you know, a seer of things. Um, but still, I think for retirees, you know, these, these trade-offs, you think about, okay, if I'm going to be retired for two to three decades and I need an income I cannot live and I'm going to use my, you know, my investments as a resource for some of that standard of living through withdrawing money, um, low interest rates are a problem. But then again, there's offsets by if we do have higher inflation, that's maybe a larger uh, problem for investors uh, than low interest rates. At least that seems to be the research that I see. At the end, I don't think either one of them is going to be that big of a problem, uh, but it's certainly something to consider. And and I always you know go back to like when people say, well you know why would I hold bonds right now? The the you know the interest rate environment's low. Maybe it's ticking up a bit as we're seeing, but it's still very low historically right. speaking. And I say, well, what's the alternative if if we agree that we're not supposed to be a hundred percent stocks or ninety percent stocks or eighty percent stocks, whatever it may be. We need money to be invested other ways that doesn't have the same risk characteristics as your as your invested dollars in the stock market. And so until we have a better, <laughs> more perfect system, we have bonds. And yeah, I, I really look at bonds as something that, you know, at best treads water, doesn't really build wealth, uh, doesn't maintain wealth unless you just don't spend the, in, if you, you know, unless you reinvest the income. Bonds are just that area of your portfolio that just don't get impacted by all the craziness. I mean, and, and to me... Um, it's no different than when CDs were at 16%. People felt better, mm -hmm. but they lopped off 5 or 6% for taxes. And so maybe they had a 10% return after tax, but then inflation was 13%. They were losing 2 or 3%, uh, at, you know, even when interest rates were higher. So the bonds are really there. Just It's more of, hey, this is an area where things get crazy. These things are relatively, they can be very stable depending on how you dial up your maturities, et cetera. But you guys favor high-quality, short-term maturities. Is that fair to say? Is that a recent phenomenon? Is that a full-time view? We've always felt that way just because we view bonds, the role of bonds in a portfolio, as being the stabilizer of the investment portfolio. And for our client base, that which is predominantly retired, it's, it's a source of funds in periods where the market is down. We still have to send them their monthly withdrawals from their portfolio. We're going to sell from the bond portion of the portfolio if the market's down substantially to generate that monthly income. Um, if you go to really long-term bonds or low-quality junk bonds, 
those don't really fulfill that role of being the stabilizer of the portfolio because really long-term bonds are very sensitive to interest rate right. increases. And really low-quality junk bonds are very volatile. Just, all, you know, if you go to low enough quality, basically as volatile as the stock market or close to it. Um, so that's that's really with all of your investment decisions. You always have to ask yourself, what are what am I trying to accomplish here? And with bonds, what we're trying to accomplish is being that stabilizer of the portfolio. And, you know, you've talked a lot about lately when it comes to stock investing, the goal is to never interrupt compounding. Right. You could even think of bonds as their job is to make sure that you never interrupt the long-term compounding of the stock portion of your portfolio. And that's the value of bonds. And they can do that two ways. One is simply just making it psychologically easier to stick with your investment allocation. A lot of people just psychologically can't handle 100% stock allocation and stick with it. The other one is if you're retired and you're taking money out of your portfolio, as I said earlier, you need to have a plan to cover those withdrawals during periods where the stock market is not performing well, where it's down a lot. Well, the bond portion fills that role. You can sell from the bond portion of your portfolio to fund your portfolio withdrawals for a number of years if you have enough bonds and make sure that you never have to sell the stock portion of your portfolio while it's temporarily down a whole bunch and never interrupt that long-term compounding. In fact, if the market corrects, you know, uh, enough, you know, if it, it declines enough, uh, say 10, 15, 20, 30% as that folds out, you end up being also a forced buyer of, of the great companies of America and the world when they're down temporarily because eventually if it declines large enough, your your allocation is going to get out of whack and your bonds are going to be larger percentage of your allocation than you really want full-time and your stock market portion is going to fall below that allocated level. And so if you're paying attention and you're rebalancing and you're, you're diligent about that, at the same time, are you not, you're not only not selling you know, shares of the stock mutual funds, you're actually probably enhancing your long-term lifetime financial viability of that plan by increasing the number of shares of those great companies of America and the world. I think that's fair to say, and I think that's something I think that's something people don't really think about enough. So bonds are there to be a stabilizer, and you can't expect any material return net of taxes inflation for something that doesn't get impacted negatively when during crazy stuff. It's a stable, safer, predictable investments by their very nature offer little to no return. But I think I like the way you put it, Dave, but they're extremely valuable because that is the key to not interrupting the compounding and earning the great historical long-term returns of the great companies of America that they've provided historically. And something I've been doing more and more, particularly with our retired clients, because I think declines get scarier when you're taking money out of your portfolio. Especially on the front end of retirement. For sure. And one of the things I've been doing is instead of saying you have 40% of your money in bonds, I'm just making up a number. Right. Instead of using a percentage, I'll say you have $400,000 in bonds. And we're taking, I'm just making up numbers here, $40,000 a year out of your investment portfolio. So we've got 10 years worth of portfolio withdrawals in bonds. So as long as you think the, the market's going to recover sometime in the next 10 years, we're going to be okay because we're not going to be selling the stock, you know, any of the stock portion of your portfolio uh, while it's down. We've got basically like this 10-year runway of stable stuff that we can use to fund your lifestyle for the next 
decade or so bef- before we'd ever have to tap the stock portion. Do you guys find it common, because I do, uh, especially during really big declines, is it's real easy to forget that those bonds are very stable. In other words, I think when people see a portfolio decline by 15% or whatever it is, they kind of associate the whole portfolio as going down. And we have found it's very important to remind people in dollar terms how much of their money, of their assets, are in very stable securities that have virtually no impact that are, you know, on them uh, during the, these, you know, the crisis-type times. Yep. And I think sometimes people forget that that's what bond funds are. They're the very, should be a very stable component of the portfolio. Maybe not perfectly stable, but if the stock market's down 20% suddenly, they probably aren't going to be down much, if anything at all. They're probably at least treading water. Yep. I think that's why, Dave, you've done such an excellent job in like equating what is the reality of bonds. It's, it's years of survival without having to touch and interrupt the compounding of the stocks. It just draws the direct line to what they are and, and makes it more real than just a, a percentage in your portfolio. I think, yeah, that's the, that's, the, that's the side that allows the other thing to do its magic. The magic of compounding, as I wrote in my newsletter, you can, you know, if, you, if you're diversified, you're probably, if history's any guide, going to earn pretty good returns. They're never going to be the best, never going to be the worst. They're going to be generally pretty good returns over one's lifetime. And that's where the magic happens with compounding is when you, when you compound a pretty good return for a long number of years. Mm-hmm. And anything we can do to, to keep from interrupting that compounding, that's enter bonds. I think that's the magic of bonds is it allows the magic of compounding to run its course. And the magic of compounding, if history is any guide, is what's not only going to allow one's uh, lifestyle to meet their increased cost of living, but indeed enhance that standard of living over time. It's never a lock. It's never a guarantee. But there's virtually no chance of having a really high-quality retirement, in my experience, if you interrupt compounding of the great companies of America and the world. That's where the mistakes – that's where that exit ramp to eternal financial sadness is, begins with, I'm going to do something and interrupt compounding. And I think to your point where people sometimes look at the whole portfolio in aggregate and just look at the overall fluctuation and don't necessarily look at, okay, how much do I have in bonds that is stable? I really have noticed that comes into play with clients or people that are like in their 80s because they're thinking, well, I don't have a really long time frame for the market to recover. And something I was thinking about yesterday because I was actually – I talked to an 80-year-old client recently is, you know what, realistically – there's a chance, say they expect to live to their low 90s, the market might not have a positive return over of that course. time frame. I mean, it it's unlikely that it will have a negative return over that time frame, but it's happened. But I mean, there there's is a definitely been 10-year periods. And so something I've been thinking of more and more, is, especially for clients at that age, is, look, let's make sure you have enough money in bonds to maybe fund the, re- the yeah, rest of your uh, lifetime. It's reasonable. And then if you want to stretch for higher returns and you're comfortable with the fact that there's high odds that you will end up with a positive investment return over that decade, then you can put the remainder of your money in stocks or a certain percentage of your money in stocks. But I do think people have to come to grips with the reality that, you know, especially an 80-year-old, if you've got a 10-year runway, look, 
there's no guarantee that you're actually going to earn a positive return in the stock market over that time frame. So you want to make sure that, you know, you basically got your needs covered and then that you're comfortable with essentially the uncertainty around stock investing for whatever you do have in the stock market. I think that's a good point. And I, I, I'm, I'm doing a lot of research in that area right now, and I've come to some pretty strong conclusions that that is the case. There are those trade-offs, and we ought to pay attention to, okay, how many more years are we likely you know, to live before we wake up on a cloud? And to have that conversation, because if you probably listen to us, you you have this expectation that things are always going to work out, right? And chances are they will, but that's not 100% chances are they will. There have been 10-year periods, there have been 15-year periods where the total return in the stock market is negative. And there's no reason to think there couldn't be a 20 or a 30-year. So, I mean, that is that is the unpredictability that's built in, and but that is the... That's the yeast of the higher expected returns at the same time. Um, but I think that, but what about this, Dave? For that same 80-year-old client, there comes a point where we, where we all get to decide, are we trying to execute any type of leg- legacy issue? In other words, do we want to take our last breath with our last dollar or do we want, and there's no right or wrong here. I mean, I'm not, I'm not virtue signaling that everybody ought to leave a legacy but let's not kid ourselves that a lot of times it's never our money really we're not taking it with us and there might be a reason for an 80 year old to have as much as half of their money in the stock market because first of all at at 40 or 50 percent of the money in the stock market I'm, i'm not i'm not advocating this i'm just saying mathematically they probably have enough in bonds to live out the rest of their life anyway but if there's a legacy in mind, that's when it's still, then you have to say, okay, well, the time horizon really now is not the 80-year-old that might live into their 90s. It's the children and the grandchildren or the children they, they'll never meet. But that's that's kind of what I was getting at is maybe you look at it like, I'm going to lock in my needs. I'm going to cover my needs with bonds so I don't security. have to worry about my lifetime. And if there's plenty of money left over... You know, say say it only takes 20% of your assets to fund your expected expenses for the rest of your lifetime, then go ahead and have the other 80% in stocks. It's Everyone's going to be different as far as their financial resources and their spending levels, and there's some uncertainty around long-term care. Every, obviously, we don't know how long we're going to live, so you're going to want some buffer room in there and margin for error. But, yeah, you could almost think of it as, like, the bonds are for me, right. and the stocks are for my children, and for or, me, if they're if they're particularly good, I might withdraw some from that as well. Exactly, and I'm and that's leading me in it. And for some time, I, I've been thinking, probably on the front end of retirement, we need to be thinking about this because, say, a person comes to you with a million dollars and they go, "Boy, I really want to leave at least a half a million dollars to my grandchildren." Thirty years from now. You might say, well, okay, well, that's best funded and earmarked in a different way. And it's going to be at first 100% stock market stuff. And it's probably going to take 20% down payment to historically have gotten to where you want in real terms that half a million dollars. So we got to set aside 200000 for your legacy issue. You do that up front and you let compounding do all the magic work for you. And then now you have 800000 This is yours to where you could ultimately live a more conservative retirement lifestyle from an allocation standpoint. Um, and and I, I think this is, I think I expect that that's where we will evolve to shortly. 
um, is just traditionally, isn't it fair to say, when you look at all the software that financial advisors use, I mean, there's some pretty common themes. They all have little twists, but pretty common themes. You have a million dollars. You figure out, you know, what's a reasonable, sensible withdrawal rate. Something I want to talk about in the final por- portion of this. And then you ha- kind of keep an eye on what the legacy might be. Mm-hmm. I think, and that's pretty much the, the common theme. I think that theme needs to change. And I think we need to think about earmarking these things differently. Speaking of, go ahead, Ryan. I was going to say, with that strategy, which is probably the most common, is it's w- whatever is left over for the state is kind of like a hope and an afterthought. It's like, it's, it's like a, oh, wonderful, how nice. Whereas you're saying, let's, let's flip the, the investment process on its head and say, let's start from day one earmarking, planning, and building towards that goal rather than just saying, well, whatever's left over is left over. Instead of mixing the allocations, right. I, I, think it, I, think it, um, I think it hurts both the, the, the beneficiary down the road for the legacy. Why? Because, well, typical someone in the early 60s might have a portfolio that's 50% stocks, 50% bonds, maybe 60% stocks, it doesn't matter. And so that's how that legacy goal is getting managed. For the next 30 years, this money we want is being, has 40% of it in bonds. Mm-hmm. What's it do for the, the retirees that's saying, well, you know what? If we separated these goals and now we have 800000 to deal with, maybe that portfolio is only 20 or 30% stocks and the balance in bonds, you're not, you're not trying to do any legacy work here. You're just mm-hmm. saying, hey, if I need 50000 a year to spend, what's a really high – what's the lowest – what's the most predictable way – with the highest confidence that I'll maintain that lifestyle through. And I think the, the retiree ends up with, a, with less unpredictability in their life and the legacy gets magnified beyond what it would be if you, when you mix the two. Uh, I'm not suggesting some people aren't doing this, but the softwares really aren't out there to really do it in a, oh, people say, yeah, you can, and it sort of can, but... I think there's more work to do on this. Speaking of that, in the last couple of weeks, I've probably seen more articles about the 4% rule being the 3% rule or the 3 and a third percent rule, uh, only to have the author of the original study saying that was 4% rule saying it's actually 4.7% rule, and that's the one he's using for himself. Um, you know, I think the author's right. I think it is the, now, here's the caveat. I think it is 4.7, and and working on a new process that I'm working on, I come to the same conclusion, and largely because it should come to the same conclusions that Bingham did at 4.7%. Well, the difference between 4 and 4.7 or 3% and 4.7, these are big lifestyle trade-offs. Here's the caveat. 4.7 is probably really 4 after expenses. So we're probably still, for retirees, if I'm thinking about what is a reasonable spending starting out spending, you know, uh, percentage to use, I'm probably still at the 4%. If a client walked in today, I'd probably say, in my brain, I'm probably going to use 4%. It might be a little north or less, depending whether it's 25 years, 30 years, 20 years. Um, You guys seeing those articles or do you even pay attention to them? I always see those articles and I always think it's kind of silly because I don't like the rule part of it. It's not that I have an issue with the 4%. What do you mean by that? I don't like that it's a blanket just generalization based on a specific set of assumptions and then a whole bunch of people out there that maybe their actual circumstances don't match the assumptions behind the 4% rule research, and then they're following it not knowing that there's 
significantly underspending or potentially overspending. Like, I don't think it would necessarily be a good idea to follow the 4% rule if you retired at age 40. You might want to take a little more conservative withdrawal well, rate. Well, for sure. now we're dealing with 60-plus years. And the flip side of that is if you're 75 years old or 80 years old, you can definitely withdraw more than 4% of your account balance because you have a much shorter time horizon. And that's why I just I, – I, I just think sometimes we almost do people a disservice providing these rules of thumb because people follow them that maybe it doesn't apply to their actual You know what's interesting, though? I've never met one person in 38 years that actually followed the 4% rule. So it just there's so much written about it, but I've never met one person that says, yes, I've lived the last 30 years using the 4% rule, which means you start out at 4% and you increase it by whatever the general level of inflation is each year. Um, I think of it more as a useful guideline for someone who's sitting out there and they're 60 years old and they're wondering, do I have enough money to retire yet? And kind of an easy way to do that, I think, is to say, let's use a simple example. I would like spending of $5,000 a month, I'm going to call it 60000 a year, would run my life for the rest of my life if I can maintain that lifestyle in real inflation-adjusted terms and say, okay, so we know it's 60000 is the goal. Suppose Social Security between uh, t- two spouses is uh, 2500 a month. Okay, so we have 30000 showing up. So we're trying to plug this hole for 30000 I thought of this kind of as a simple way, instead of using percentages, which some people struggle with, is if it's truly the 4% rule that is a guideline for the beginning, I could flip that on its head and say, well, if I need 30000 forget about thinking in terms of thousands. I'm just going to pull the 30, and I'm going to multiply that by 25. And now I get to 750 Well, I think it's probably more than $750 I need. I add three zeros. So for a person that needs 30000 a year to show up, inflation adjusted, hopefully, for the rest of their life, you say, well, 30000 is 30 times 25 is 750 Add three zeros. I'm going to say probably need somewhere between seven and 800000 would probably be a realistic neighborhood you want to be in to feel comfortable going into three decades of retirement. What say you guys? Yeah. Do you, do you like that? Yeah, Just I think, multiplying I think by it's, 25? It's helpful for back-of-the-envelope math, but when the rubber meets the road and you have to actually retire and decide how much you're going to withdraw, I think it's important to individualize your withdrawal yeah. rate. Oh, for sure. This is just, yep. uh, you know, mom, uh, mom or dad, are we there yet? Yep. You know, it's kind of like uh, some people don't know if I need, to re- I need to save another million or I need to save another 10000 I'm just trying, trying to think of a useful way to say, Am I close enough to where I can seriously think about this? And maybe I ought to go talk to an advisor to find out if they then can say, well, okay, based on your circumstances, maybe it's a little less or a little more. Would that be fair? Yeah, that, that's why I like the 4% rule. It's not meant to be like this, like set it and forget it uh, investing strategy for someone who's actually in retirement, but rather for me is a barometer. How close am I? Am I in the neighborhood? I'm in, am I in the ballpark? of being close to retirement, or am I in the neighborhood or the ballpark of spending what I should be spending? According to research, you can benchmark it against the study. And it's not meant, in my opinion, to be like, here is your uh, top to bottom advice, follow it directly, don't change, and you'll be fine. It's everyone's situation is different. I wouldn't recommend anybody actually use the 4% rule. Yeah. No, I completely agree. I think taking fundamentally taking a fixed withdrawal strategy that never makes an adjustment 
from an investment portfolio that fluctuates is never going to be optimal. That's like driving in a car, going on a trip and saying, I don't need brakes and I don't need mirrors because I'm not going to make any adjustments based on what's happening outside. Or a steering wheel. I'll just line myself up (laughs) really, really well. So it it doesn't make (laughs) sense, but it's a useful guide. (coughs) In fact, I think if I was to retire today, I'm 62, I'd probably be thinking in terms of 5% because I'm I'm willing to be flexible. And chances are I'll never have to reduce it, but there's a, de- there's a decent chance I will. And I can make that trade-off. So for people that saying, wow, the 4% on the front end isn't really going to do it, 45 or 5 would, that's an interesting conversation and one that should be had because, yes, you can do it. It might mean, okay, you start out at a higher, but there's a little like higher likelihood that in any given year, it might actually be lower than it would have been if you were more conservative at the 4%, but generally not. So that's where I think rules of thumb or rules of dumb, as I call them sometimes, I think that's where they cheat people because they keep them from investigating, well, gosh, I wish somebody 20 years ago would have told me I could have started out at five or maybe even 6% as long as I was willing to be flexible because I have a lifestyle that's very flexible. The only hesitation I have with that approach is like, well, if you really need that 5 or 6% withdrawal, is that a sign that you're not going to be able to reduce it? So yet? I think that's where you need to think realistically about, okay, what, what, is, you know, what would be my ideal spending versus what is my essential spending and really build our life around the essential spending and let the other prove itself out. For sure. Um, but there's a lot of different ways this can be thought of. To, you know, so by bringing up the... rule or a rule of thumb is not suggesting anybody should use it. It's a way of saying you're sitting in your office, you're frustrated, and you're wondering if you're even close. I think that's a reasonable thing to do. Take the the net of your income needs, take the thousands out of it. So if it's 30,000, it's 30 times 25, which is essentially 1 over Mm 0.04. Add three zeros, and it'll tell you if you're close enough. Well, guys, we've come to an end. I hope people found that half way interesting i you know we never really get a chance much to just sit around and talk like we would talk around if we were having sitting around a table talking about hey what's your take on this article or that article today's show is a little bit kind of how we sit around and think and talk about retirement and all those issues that surrounding it well we'll be back in a couple different in a couple weeks uh dr fred's going to be here thanks for listening today and thanks to wdws am 1400 for allowing us to have this show have a great day Thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's On the Money here on DWS, paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. You can join Paul on the second and fourth Tuesdays of each month here on News Talk 1400 and 939 FM. The views expressed in this program were those of the host and the guests, and not necessarily those of the station. You're listening to News Talk 1400 and 939 FM WDWS Champaign Urbana, a Champaign Multimedia Group station.